And as you make your way there, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was probably, after C.S. Lewis, the most influential Christian apologist of the 20th century. Uh, between 1948 and his death in 1984, Francis Schaeffer welcomed literally thousands and thousands of primarily European young people into his home to study and to rest and to meet Jesus. Uh, it started out, he moved to Switzerland in 1948 uh, in the immediate post-World War II era, and there were and his daughter was off to college, and she, she would bring friends home from school to talk to her dad because these young Europeans who had just come through, uh, many of them had grown up in the aftermath of World War I. They had just lived through World War II, and they had no idea if there was really truth and really uh, dignity to human beings and really life worth living and uh, even, in fact, many of them were questioning whether they could know for sure that you existed as a human being or not, or whether you were some kind of a cosmic thought some space lizard was having or whatever. But, you know, they were just a lot of very confused people. And they met Schaefer's daughter, and she began to bring them home and said, you know, you ought to talk to my dad. He has answers to all these questions that you have. And he was just a little Midwestern... Uh, evangelical pastor, but he began to bring them into his home and began to talk to them, and he founded a place called Labrie, which means in French, the shelter. And it really was for, uh, for about 40 years, a shelter for people with questions and people who wanted to investigate whether life had meaning, whether truth is real, whether God is there, whether he has spoken or not. And and he was a brilliant man. He has, in fact, if you can get his collected works, it occupies most of a shelf, actually. All the stuff that he had written, books like uh, The God Who Is There, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, The Escape from Reason, all these kind of uh, great books. Uh, and you can, they're worth reading today. Uh, but one of the last books he wrote was based on a sermon. It was called The Mark of the Christian. And this sermon became a book. And, um, and what he was saying in this sermon, the mark of the Christian, is that our Christianity cannot be all talk, can't be all theory, it can't be all logical argument. People have to see Christianity lived out in a credible way. Uh, in fact, according to Jesus himself, and this is Schaefer's point in the sermon, love is the ultimate apologetic. Love is the ultimate apologetic. Uh, you know, Schaefer's sermon, as he was developing it, he, what he did was he looked at John chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples and for the church that they would found. And in that prayer, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prays this for the church. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And this was Schaefer's comment on that. This is the whole point. 
the world is going to judge whether Jesus has been sent by the Father on the basis of something that is open to observation. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And that is absolutely true. Love is what distinguishes Christians from everybody else out there. Or at least the thing that ought to, amen? Because love is the thing that enables a watching world to determine whether Christianity is true or not. And that leaves me to an observation. If it's true that it is by our love that the world evaluates whether Christianity is real, then we need to excel in demonstrating it. Amen? We need to excel in demonstrating genuine love. We need to do more, on, in fact, than simply act loving. We need to actually be people characterized by love, just as the Scripture says. And that leads me to another question then. How do we do that? How do we do that? <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Uh, what does genuine love look like in daily life? Well, Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 9, tells us about how to live distinct from the world. How to be people characterized by love for one another. So... We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. I'm just going to read them all. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. <coughs> this whole section here, these four verses, these five verses, have to do with showing love to your church family. And what you see as you read through these is a mix of positives, things to do, and negatives, things to avoid, because we aren't simply to pursue godly behavior, we're also to forsake ungodly behavior, to turn away from that which is displeasing to God. Amen? Uh, so the word, the word here begins, let love be genuine. And I'm going to teach you a little Greek here on that word genuine. Uh, it doesn't actually read in Greek genuine, it, le it reads on hupokrito which you don't need to know that, but it does, what it means is, is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. In fact, some of your translations may read that way. Okay. What a hypocrite was, it, 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 the, in, in, it actually is a term from the theater for an actor. Because I don't know if you've seen, you know, sometimes you see the symbols for the theater and they've got the tragedy and the comedy mask, right? Well, in the ancient Greek theater, they actually did that. They would have, when you, when you were a new character, you would hold up a mask in front of your face. And then you would answer from under 
the mask. Hupo means under, and the and krito is from the uh, Greek word meaning answer. So to speak, so someone who speaks out. Thank you. God bless you. Um, someone who speaks out from under a mask is a hypocrite. They're an actor. They present one face out front, but there's something else behind, right? And so, Paul, what Paul is saying is, our love should not be like that. Our love should be genuine. The face we show and the love we have ought to be the same thing, right? It shouldn't be the kind of thing where we present one side of ourselves to people publicly, but back behind when they're not looking, have a different feeling or express thought about them. It ought to be genuine. Our love should come from the heart. It ought to be something that we actually feel, not just a face we put on. Amen? Sometimes in the church, we're, we're tempted, I think, to substitute love for superficial niceness. Can I get away with saying that? Sometimes we do that to one another. We don't actually love each other, we're just polite. <laughs> That's not the goal. The goal is genuine care and concern and love for each other. And he goes on to explain that. He says, he, he says that you need to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Uh, genuine love hates what is evil. Right? We don't like to see people destroyed. We hate that. And we hate everything that destroys what we love. And whether we realize it or not, hypocrisy is a form of sin. Because we pretend to be what we aren't. And we present a false front rather than striving for actually being godly. One of the professors I had at seminary, I dearly love this man, is Dr. John Hanna. He taught church history, or at least that was the subject he was assigned to teach. Mostly he taught us about godliness and the Christian life in the context of teaching us church history. But in any case, uh, he, said, he said one time, he said, he said, men and women, you have to understand the Christian life is more than avoiding all the big sins and hiding the fact that you do all the little ones. And he was exactly right. And, and our love for one another can't be hypocritical. It needs to be real. It needs to be genuine. We need to hate hypocrisy and strive for the reality. To strive for what is real. Too many of us, I think, are content with the cubic zirconia of superficial niceness rather than the diamond of actual love. But real love turns away from the imitation and pursues what is real. 
pursues the real thing with other people, despite all of their flaws and despite all of yours. How do you know when you got it? Well, again, the verses, this section just keeps unfolding. And the verses that are here explain that. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Real love begins by recognizing that we are, we are, not we're going to be at some point in the future when we stand before Jesus, but we are right now family. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are right now my brother, my sister. And we need to love each other like we actually believe that that's true. Right? Love each other like you actually believe that. You know, one of the things I do like about going home to Indiana, being with my family, is that we love each other. You know, we don't always get along perfectly, but the fact is, is that we all stick by one another. You know, my family, Karen's too, they're both like this. We're so blessed. Whatever happens, we stick by one another. Something, something breaks, uh, need help with a project, there are people I can call, Right? Somebody goes to the hospital, somebody gets sick, we're going to be there for each other. We're going to call and check in. We're going to pray. Why do we do that? Because we're family and we love each other, right? Same thing is true in the body of Christ, where it ought to be. There ought to be hugging. There ought to be, uh, when it's appropriate, kissing. There ought to be uh, affection. There ought to be help. There ought to be aid. There ought to be verbal affirmation. Hey, I love you. Praying for you. There ought to be self-sacrifice. There ought to be things that we do that aren't necessarily convenient because we love each other and our brother or our sister ask us. We ought to love each other like the family we really are. I love this next line here in these verses too. Outdo one another in showing honor. I don't know about your house, but in my house we, we get a little competitive. We have to be careful what games we play at my house because in fact, we, we have some games that we no longer play because we get too competitive, <laughs> right? Um, we, we love each other, but we also are cutthroat when it comes to games. Uh, because the entire balance of justice and harmony in the universe depends on me winning, right? Uh, I know none of the rest of you are like that. But in my family, we get a little competitive about things. And, you know, there's been occasional tears and all that kind of stuff, right? That happens. But Paul says here, you want to compete with one another? Compete with one another in showing each other honor. Compete, outdo one another in showing each other honor. Now, within the church, within the body of Christ, 
competition is never self-exalting or prideful. At least it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be about who can best honor the other members of the body of Christ. Outdo one another in showing honor. The fact is, is that criticism and complaint come very naturally to us, right? If you don't believe me, get yourself a Facebook membership, right? And you'll see everybody's criticism, complaint, and rant of the day, right? If you really want to see it, get on Twitter. It'll wreck your life, <laughs> okay? You'll have more things to complain about than you have time to tell, right? Uh, that seems to be the primary purpose for which those things exist, showing pictures of your cat and complaining, right? But that is not the way that we as people uh, who love Jesus Christ are to be. We're to be people who lift one another up, who encourage each other, who give honor to each other, and who in fact compete with one another for the purpose of of honoring and exalting each other who wouldn't want to be a community be part of a community like that by the way where every time you went and got together with people that they encouraged you and told you that they loved you and how proud of you that they were would you not want to be part of that i'd want to be part of that right that's what the church is supposed to be like. That's what we're supposed to be like. To be a community of people who lift each other up, who encourage each other, who show honor to one another. Verse 11 tells us, Serve the Lord with fervency and zeal and turn away from sloth. The word for zeal here is the word for boiling. For boiling. In other words, it's, it's the kind of energy applied in your serving the Lord that just kind of bubbles over, right? You ever had rice on the stove, right? It just starts coming out the lid, right? It's that kind of idea that we serve the Lord with an excess, in a sense, of energy. That, that we don't sit around and wait for other people to take care of us, that we are the people who take care of other people. That we are the ones who serve with energy. You know, our hearts naturally push us, at least mine does, they naturally push us toward being lazy and toward wanting somebody else to do things for us, right? I got sick this last week, you know, and I get sick in the way that where everything hurts, like even your hair hurts, right? And your eyeballs hurt, and you just want to lay on the couch with a hot beverage and moan, right? And, um, and you start doing things like, the Kleenex is across, you know, it's, a, it's on the coffee table and it's too far away, <laughs> right? And you start calling people from the other room. <laughs> Come get me the Kleenex, I can't reach it, you know. Um, you just feel horrible, right? 
Well, some of us kind of act like we're that way all the time, right? And we just want somebody to serve me, take care of me, do things for me, right? And there's nothing wrong with, being, with needing taken care of at points. But the fact is, is that zeal should characterize our serving others because ultimately we're serving the Lord. Amen? It's ultimately not the other person that you're serving. It's ultimately serving the Lord. And so we ought to have a fervent spirit. Not be slothful, but be energetic in what we're doing because it's the Lord that we serve. Verse 12 tells us what to do when it's hard. How does love look when it's hard? Well, first, we rejoice in hope. Because this life, you know, if you know this, some of you are old enough to know it. Some of you still think you're going to live forever. But this life is not forever. When you're young, that sounds like bad news. The older you get, the better it sounds. <laughs> right? This life is not forever. And we have a hope that outlasts this life and all of its circumstances and this body and the grave. We have an eternal Savior who is coming back for us. We have a resurrection body that will one day be ours. And we will dwell in the presence of the Savior with the Lord and with one another forever and ever. Amen. And we, therefore, have much reason to rejoice in the hope that that is happening. And so when tough times come, whatever they are, you're sick, you're sick seriously, someone that you uh, are close to is dying, you're dying, whatever the, you know, your, your, your TV's in hock, uh, you just lost your job, you and the wife are not getting along. Whatever the circumstances are, we nevertheless have hope that the Lord is coming and this life is not going to last forever. So we rejoice in hope and we're patient in tribulation because we know whatever my circumstances are, they aren't permanent. That in fact, joy is permanent. And Jesus is permanent. And eternity is permanent. And this is just outside this morning. That's all we are. Our life is just that. Just that cold vapor that you see for a second and then disappears. And so we're patient in tribulation. And we are also constant in prayer. You know, I think, I think the reality is, is that the more that we pray, the more we realize we need to. You pray when you realize you don't have everything figured out. Amen? And you pray when you go, you know, I don't think I can handle this. It's all the things that you've got, you think you've got wired that you don't pray about. And it's all the things that you 
no, you can't handle that you seek the Lord for, right? And as, as I get older, one of the things I realize is that the list of things I can't handle is a lot longer than it used to be. And I have to spend more time praying. But when you go through stuff, be constant in prayer. Because when you pray, you also get reminded that we have hope and that trials <coughs> are not forever. And you can be patient. Verse 13 turns back from, um, from us to serving other people in very practical ways. It says, it talks about giving and it talks about hospitality. If you love other people, sooner or later, it's going to get into your money. It just is. Loving other people costs something. It costs time. It costs money. Uh, neither of which we're anxious to give up. But loving other people is at some point going to be a costly thing. And so he says, if you love others, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. It's not just talking about necessarily uh, giving to the church and its operations. Is that something you should do? Yes. It's talking about when somebody calls you and says, hey man, my water heater broke and I really need you to pray for me because we don't have any money to fix it. Looking at your spouse and going, well, we got a little money. Why don't we get him a water heater? I'll help him go install it, right? Or, you know, hey, I'm broke down along the side of the road. Can you call the tow truck for me? Yep, I can call the tow truck. You need a ride home? Yeah. I'll get you I'll come get you. It's two in the morning, I know. <laughs> right? Love does those things. Love shows up at a hospital bed or in a waiting room. Love sacrifices. It, it meets needs. And it also shows hospitality. Uh, let me just clarify here real, real quickly what hospitality means. Hospitality is not having your friends over to eat chicken wings at your house and watch football. Okay? Um, is that a good thing? Yes. Please invite me over. I will eat your chicken wings. Right? Um, but that is not what hospitality is about. Biblical hospitality is about showing love for the stranger, for the alien, for the least, or as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the people who cannot pay you back. The people who don't have a big screen and chicken wings. Right? The people who can't do anything for you. Show hospitality. Be looking out for 
the stranger, the alien, the least, the poor, the ignored, all the people who would otherwise be forgotten by everybody else. He's looking out for them and caring for them and providing for them. Well, this is a pretty amazing paragraph, I think, these five verses. Some convicting stuff in here. And it is a challenge, I think, for a lifetime of Christian living because these are the things that show us what it means for our love to be genuine and for us to live a life without hypocrisy when we say that we are Christians and we say that we love one another. And here at the end of the year, this, I think, is a good challenge for us. What would your life look like this next year if you memorized these verses and prayed and asked the Lord to help you and to help me and to help us as a church body put these verses into practice? What would that look like? What would your social media posts look like? What would your interactions with people look like? What would your service in the church look like? What would your life outside a church look like? What would your life in your neighborhood and at your job look like? If you put this into practice. On top of that, what would the community think if we as brothers and sisters got serious about loving each other in the way this chapter describes? Do you think there'd be people who would be drawn to that? I bet there would be. And by the way, I just want to encourage you, I don't think we're starting from zero here. (laughs) Okay? This is a loving community, and I am very blessed to be part of it. And I know that many of you feel the same way. But there's some distance here. Some room we could grow in, right? Let's strive for that. Father, I thank you that you love us perfectly. And you show us in your word how to love each other well also. Father, I pray that we would grow into this. That more and more our love would be genuine and without hypocrisy. That you would help us to live love in capital letters with each other. But Father, also I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this community and for calling me to be part of it. I thank you for those who are here this morning and for those who are not. I thank you that that we are all family and that you have knitted us together by your Holy Spirit and that we will spend eternity together, not just this morning or this year or this decade or this lifetime, but we'll spend forever. We'll be together as brothers and sisters because you loved us with an everlasting love and you still love us day by day, in all of our circumstances. And Father, we thank you for the way you love us and teach us to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.